Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast episode number 37. Lydia is not going to be with us this month. She is traveling with Miles. Actually, they took off morning. I got up at 3.40 in the morning to take them to the airport, and they're heading to school in Virginia, and so she's not going to be with us which I'm going to miss her dearly. She's only gone four or five days, which is not bad. And then I take off to Italy. So I'll be gone for three months. So I just wanted everyone to know that if I'm a little slow on answering questions within the Facebook page or on the Inner Circle, I'm going to be shooting a movie with Gabrielle Muccino, uh, who I did Fathers and Daughters with, and looking forward to that. So I'm I'm about ready to embark on a wonderful, dramatic journey, and I will be sharing all of that with you. All right, let's get this party started. Lydia, I miss you very much. And of course, the first question is right up her alley, but I'm going to do my best to answer it like she does her best to try and answer some of the technical stuff. Hey guys, I just wanted to give you some feedback on your December podcast format. It's a little late. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it and I appreciated the, the give and take aspect and would love to have more of that format, potentially for the best of both worlds. One month, it's Shane City. The next, it's Lydia and the Shane Duet. Well, it's Shane City for episode 37. Leon, I would love to hear more about the other side of the industry. As you mentioned, surrounding health and longevity, what you guys do to keep up the energy and inspiration. It really helps us a sanity check for the dark days. Also, any insight into psychology and philosophy whenever that is applicable is always very appreciated too. Thanks for the great work and all your love. Cheers from Sydney. All right, well, Leon, thank you so much. Well, Lydia is incredible with all of this, and uh, I'm not going to speak for her, but I'm going to give my side uh, of all this, because 
She is my soulmate, and she really does so many things to keep me on track and uh, take care of my uh, my mind as well as take care of my body. And she has been a huge proponent as I get up into the age of, of 50, over 50. You know, it's very, you need to really take care of yourself. Uh, it's not like uh, the glory days of being 20 and 30 years old where you, you can basically just burn it out there and and be good. You really have to take care of yourself, eat the right things. You have to work out, uh, exercise your body and mind. And these are things that she really pushes me to do. And, you know, I'm going to pass some of those things on to all of you. One of the big things that she has been a huge proponent of is working out, you know, really kind of going in there and, you know, I, well, I I just want to tell you that uh, I hate working out. I hate it so much that uh, she was on a mission to figure out how to find a workout that I would do. And I, I'm always, you know, nothing is quick enough. Nothing is intense enough. Nothing is, I don't know. I just, I don't like long workouts. I think that the minute my mind knows knows that the workout is going to be 30, 45 to an hour, then I just shut down. I I don't have much uh, motivation in regards to that. So she went out and looked for several months and she came to me and she said, Shane, I have the workout program. It is specifically designed for, for very quick only 15 minutes and it's perfect for, you know, you behind the camera and operating camera and stamina and all that stuff. So I'm like, all right, let's try this thing out. So we cleared out the couches, we put it up on the television and we started to do the workout. Well, I hadn't worked out in a little while. So I'm just telling you that first episode almost killed me. My mom was uh, was uh, living with us at the time and she's like, I think he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> oh my God. It was, uh, it was intense. But as I continued to do it and do it, I became better and better and better. And my muscles started to build. My weight started to drop. My, my waistline started to shrink. Everything that this guy had said that would happen. It's a very strange title. It's called Metabolic Prime. And he talks about having aftershock earthquakes within your body. So he works you for 15 minutes. That's it. uh, Very intensely. And then you're supposed to walk on the next day. So it's, you know, you work for 15 minutes really intensely. Then the next day you walk for 30 minutes. And then the next day you go back on his program. And it has four different four or six different discs and it's fairly inexpensive. So, uh, and you do a ton of squats, ton of push-ups, ton of bench pressing, which is perfect for operation of the camera and handheld and and the stamina to run and and, uh, not get, uh, you know, not breathless. So, there uh that's what she has really done for me as well as you know vitamins and uh oh one thing i wanted to kind of toss out there and and it's something that has literally changed my life in the health department and it came from 
a uh, dentist. So I went to this homeopathic dentist and you're going to say, what the hell? Homeopathic dentist? What is that? Well, when you go to this dentist, uh, the first thing he does is he takes a cotton swab and kind of swabs your mouth. And then he puts that on a slide and puts it under a microscope. And then he projects it up on the wall for you to view. And he looked at it and he goes, okay, you're deficient in C, you're deficient in B, you don't chew your food very well. It seems like you do some kind of a job where you really don't get much time to eat. And, and I was like, you know, he, I didn't tell him I worked in the movie business, but the guy literally detailed out everything that, you know, how I eat, not eating you know, eating very quickly. Even when I'm uh, shooting a movie and we get, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it might be, most of the time I'm either scouting another location in a production meeting or in a meeting with my team. It's a, it's always a grab and run scenario with, with food. And he goes, you know, I got something to help you out. They're tall. They're, they're called digestive gold enzymes and you can get them on Amazon. You got to make sure you put digestive gold enzymes and they come in all different kind of, you know, you can get 120, you can get 240. And I take two a day. I take uh, one with lunch and one with dinner. And what it does is it helps you break down that food that you don't chew effectively. And uh, because usually if you don't chew it, then it's not absorbed into your body. And then you basically, you know, poop it out. So what this does is really breaks down the, the food and you absorb it into your body. And it's really good for you. So these things literally changed my life overnight. I felt so so much better, so much healthier, and you know it's it's a great investment. I think for two hundred and forty, so that would last sixty days if you take two, so two months, it's about seventy dollars. But I have to say, once you take it and see the power of it, you will you will be a huge proponent of it, and uh, just like I am. So there's my two cents on the health side. And I'm going to have Lydia dive into the psychology and philosophy. But, you know, you talked about keeping a sanity check for the dark days. I mean, we all have dark days, Leon. I mean, there's, there's times when, you know, I look at myself and say, okay, you know, I, I shot this movie. I shot that movie. You know, uh, what's, what's next? And, and, you know, then you get projects that fire up and then they cancel and then, or they get pushed or, you know, there's things that happen and you, you can't not doubt yourself sometimes when you just say, Jesus Christ, why is it so difficult? But I always kind of circle back and, you know, attach attitude with gratitude. You know, um, there's so many things to be grateful for. And I try to be incredibly grateful for my life, for my amazing uh, wife, Lydia, to our kids, to our home, and to all of you that are within the inner circle. Uh, I think both Lydia and I treat all of you like your family. 
and we try to guide and mentor you in all specific ways to to help you and and to guide you and and get the best and uh, propel you ahead i i always you know look back on my career and i was like my god if i had shane's inner circle when i started out my god where would i have gone what would i have done so we we you know we really think very highly and and the gratitude uh, of all of you and we cannot thank you enough for supporting this and uh giving of your time and energy to help us all out and continue this incredible education resource because it takes a village. All right, Leon, there's your question. And I'm going to have Lydia circle back and answer this in another podcast, but I did my best. All right. Hello, Shane. Awesome online school. Well, thank you very much. I'm starting to work as a director of photography in small productions. Of course, we cannot rent large equipment and there is not much time on set for make a setup as God command on the set and be as dynamic as possible. Obviously, it depends on the mood of the scene. Thank you, Manuel from Italy. Well, there's going to be times when in the story, the lighting is going to be something that is is going to be able to inflict the mood and the drama of of the story. And those are the ones where you need to say, okay, I need to spend that money. And then there's going to be scenes where it's it's all about the camera. I found on my last movie, Adventures, we were in a really difficult pickle on this film because I had actors that were like having kids on set. Not that they were kids, but the time that we had them, when you're dealing with a 10 or 12 year old or 15 year old, you only have like eight hours with that child or young adult. And that's kind of what we had on Adventures. The deals with our main actors were nine hours portal to portal. So imagine if we're an hour and a half outside of Prague, and uh, so an hour and a half and an hour and a half, so there's three hours, so I lose three hours, so now I have them for six hours, and then there's lunch in there, so now I have them for five hours, and then there's hair and makeup, so now I have them for four hours. So with this, we really had to decide what the camera was going to be doing and what the lighting was going to be doing in these situations because we had to be able to turn around very quickly. The The lighting could not be very complicated. So you kind of pick your battles. I knew when I could light a scene that if the actor was moving all over the place, then I went for more of a top light vibe. So I could light them within a space that they moved around in and try to take advantage of easy and quick turnarounds to uh, keep the speed up and to deal with the time restraints that we had. I think that you really have to, when you're going through the budget, I don't think it's whether you pick one or the other. It's that you go through and systematically break the script down with your schedule, with your first assistant director, and you really look at it and you say, okay, this is where we really need to concentrate on on lighting here. You know, okay, this one is really camera driven to, to 
deliver the emotion. You know, I think back to Drumline. So in Drumline, there is a scene at the end of the movie where they have, they go to the Southern Classic, which is this big battle of the bands. So there's tons of bands. There's like 15 or 20 bands and they all compete for first prize. And we knew that we had the Georgia Dome for like, I think, six or seven days, but we could only have promoted extras, you know, like 30,000 people in the stands for two days. So we kept on going back and forth budget-wise, you know, how can we do this? How can we shoot all these battle the bands in any way that's going to be spectacular? I mean, you got to understand we've been leading the whole movie up to this one moment. So if it's like shot really quickly and not the style that the whole movie has been shot in, then it's going to kind of fall flat. So we just went back and forth on how we could make this happen. And this is where I turned to the the producer and I said, you know, this has got to be about the the artists. This has got to be about the musicians. And lighting has to be key in this. The camera can be in the right place, but it's not about movement. It's about the light And it's about letting these people, these musicians just shine. And he goes, well, what the hell does that mean? I said, well, we don't need promoted extras. He goes, well, aren't we going to see them? It's going to look like, you know, if we don't have promoted extras, it's going to be a empty house. I said, we're turning the lights off. And they're like, what? I go, yeah, imagine 50,000 people in an arena and then we turn the lights off. And then we turn this big-ass light right over the 50-yard line that lights about 15 yards each side of it, and that is where the drum battle happens. Well, that was a time to put it all on the light. Now, did the camera move? Not at all. It never moved. So the camera just did these graphic, beautiful lock-offs where the musicians just owned it. And the light was all about this top light and everything around it fell off into absolute darkness. So it became about the musicians. This was their time. And it, you know, it culminated, the whole storyline culminated to this one drum battle between these two warring, you know, uh, schools that had been going head to head all year. And now it came to this drum battle. So I'm like, what's the best way to represent that? Turn off the damn lights. Don't make it about some guy with a fluorescent green or red t-shirt in the background while they're drumming. Make it be black. So these are the things that you're going to run across, Manuel. And it's not one or the other. It's really diving into that story and diving into the emotion and the drama on each scene and see what it entails. Where is your money best spent? Is it best spent on the camera or is it best spent on the lighting? And I think that that is the question that you have to ask yourself. And I do it on every movie. I start with a key frame. I kind of go through the story in each scene and I say, what is the key frame? What is the, the shot that you're going to say, this 
in one shot conveys the drama, the emotion, the mood, and the tone of the scene. What is that one shot? Sometimes it's a close-up. Sometimes it's a wide shot, a medium shot. Sometimes it's, it's like, you know, it's whatever is going to tell that specific emotion the best. And then you work off of that. Once you have your keyframe, it's going to educate you on whether it's going to be much more lighting centric or much more camera, or sometimes it's just both. And then you just got to do that. And then you got to save money other places. So I hope this answers your question the best I can here. Okay, next one. Okay, this is from Eugene. Firstly, a huge thank you for all the time you and Lydia uh, dedicated to this resource. Two plus years here has been considerably cheaper than a film program I did back in college. Yet college didn't even get close to the teaching me as much as you have. And there is literally nothing else like it anywhere. I just hope you're able to know just how much of an impact this resource is on the filmmaking community. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for that. My team that we have around us is absolutely incredible. I, I just feel like we are firing on 12 cylinders now. And uh, I, I really appreciate those kind words because we do. It's a lot of hard work and, and balancing the education and creation in regards to me out on set and, and shooting movies has been a difficult balance. It sometimes pulls me so much one way that that uh, I have to be constantly pushing myself to, to go back the other. So uh, thank you, and uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, my question is about lenses. I remember an older podcast where you were discussing why you weren't a fan of lenses like the Rokinon Cine series. One of the reasons was that the image seems to fall apart more with the Rokes. They, that really made me wonder. There seems to have been a huge uptick of cinematographers shooting with vintage lenses and diffusion filters to take the edge off of the digital cameras. Would there be a dramatic difference between Rokinons and, say, an old set of Zeiss Superspeeds or Canon C and, uh, and E's with a Hollywood Black Magic filter on them, or even more extremely, the super cheap Canon lenses like the $90.50 mil? The flaring, breathing, coloring, focus throw would be different, but if you're not planning on doing any tricky focus pulls or sexy flares and plan to fine-tune the coloring in the DI process, are there any notable differences? Thanks for all you do. Well, Eugene, there has to be notable notable differences between this thing because one lens costs 40000 and another one costs $90. So... Um, and the vintage lenses, you got to understand, cost a lot of money back then. They were all made by hand. They weren't made by computers. They weren't whipped together with, with uh, cheap coatings and all that stuff. They, you know, it was a labor of love putting these vintage lenses together. Can you match it by putting uh, diffusion filters on? Yeah, you can get close. But then if all of a sudden, you know, a light hits the front of your your lens and you have that Hollywood black magic on there, all of a sudden you're uh, veiling out and, and flaring and, and washing out the whole image based on having that diffusion filter 
in front of the glass. So vintage lenses are definitely the way to go to take the edge off of digital cameras. I I own a, a set of Zeiss Super Speeds. I love that. I shot, my God, probably 150 music videos on those damn things. I do like the Rokinon, you know, the, the zines a lot. I think that they are a lot better than the Rokinon still lenses. And let's kind of go into that a little bit. So why does a $20,000, $30,000 piece of glass, why, what is it, why is it different than a $90 or a $2,000 piece of glass? Well, it has to do with resolution and resolving power, right? A lot of times with the cheaper lenses, you're going to have a scenario where the the lens just doesn't have the resolving power to see fine details. And when it doesn't see fine details, it morays, it vibrates, it does weird banding and aberrations. It, it does uh, a lot of things. So the resolving power is what it really gets down to. And, and sometimes if a lens is trying to be sharp, but it doesn't have its necessary resolving power, then you're going to get more A that you wouldn't get on another uh, more expensive lens. You're going to get weird color aberrations. You're, you're just going to get, uh, you're not going to see into the shadows effectively, the roll off into the shadows. That's what I see the most with still lenses. Like when I was doing adventures, I had some Rokinons on a plate rig. So I had six 6K dragons with 12 millimeter Rokinons in a 360 degree. And they would drive down the road and that was our plate vehicle. So when we went to blue screen or green screen within the cars, when we put the actors in there, we had the whole world around them. Now, what I found was those lenses just didn't resolve very well. They were $400 pieces of glass and they, they were very super contrasty. And when I mean super contrasty, when you went into the dark shadows of an, of, uh, in between buildings in Khan, and you also had the hot sky hitting the top of the building, it would not resolve that very well. The, the building would blow out and then it wouldn't see much uh, as much into the shadow area. So what you got was this more super contrasty vibe, which a lot of times we had to air on you know, putting it somewhere in the middle, but then we'd lose highlights and then we'd lose our blacks. So, you know, things would be really mushy and, and uh, muddy and, and gunk up, you know, in the blacks. And then my, my uh, whites on the buildings where the sun was like hitting the top of the building, you know, these were 12 mils, uh, you know, would just blow out. So a lens like a Cook uh, S4 would have uh, the ability to really take in that contrast and resolve it because when a lens is cheap, it doesn't resolve, it doesn't see the fine details of the building, of the overexposed area, so it just blows out because it's not seeing those finer details, so it just clips. And it doesn't see the finer details in the black, so it just goes black or muds out. So you see what I'm saying? It's like, this is where, 
you know, you separate the men from the boys with these lenses, and it's really the resolving power. Now, there's some lenses on the vintage side that the resolving power is not there, but they're so soft that they kind of make the resolving power. That's uh, the look. Kawas don't necessarily have uh, a huge resolving power, but they have this very soft kind of vintage look that I absolutely love for commercials and their flares are insane and, and uh, they have a, a very limited focal length pool to play from. And I just love that. I love being limited sometimes uh, where you have to make it all work within, you know, those specific focal lengths. So that is, I think, the best answer for your question is literally resolving power is is what separates the $90 lens to the the 10 or 8 or 20 or $30,000 lens. So my advice to you is, you know, go out and rent those uh, vintage lenses and rent the lenses and don't worry about buying them and uh, save some money there. And then when you have the money, you can you can start to I, I just I wasn't a big fan of buying a lot of lenses because I like to use all types of lenses for every different project. And there's not a time when I mean, look at Badlands. I, I used uh, Sumacron, Leica Sumacrons and uh, Adventures. I use Cooks and many of my other movies. I use Panavision Primos and then We Are Marshall and, and uh, Greatest Game. I used Zeiss Ultra Primes, the Ultra Speeds. So it's like I'm always looking at what's the soul of the movie or the commercial or the music video telling me to shoot. And then once that is established, then everything else kind of falls into place. But the big takeaway is just not, I just like to rent and not have to worry about investing in all that money when some when the project will come up and it really that glass that you just invested your money in is not the right glass for the film or the project all right okay so Lydia and I started this new thing back uh, last uh, month on episode 36 and that was time sensitive so here is our first time sensitive urgent shooting in August and September hello Shane and thank you for the inner circle I shoot both drama series and quite a lot of commercials, but I still find the inner circle very helpful. And I think it's important to tell that also a lot of DPs that actually already work at high level follow what you do and learn a lot from you. On my behalf and others, thank you. Well, that's awesome. I I I, uh, I know we have a really great collective uh, inside the inner circle, from very experienced to intermediate to beginners, and uh, I love all of your passion and how much you share with everyone and and help uh, everyone at each level. All right, to my question: I will be shooting a big exterior set scene on a stage with sunlight and a blue sky that I will have to create. I already watched your exterior set lighting part and learned from it, but now it's blue sky and sunlight. I've been told by another DP that the easiest way to do this is to have a very large white surface over the stage and to bounce HMIs with CTB on them from the ground up. And that way you can easily change the CTB level 
to adjust how blue you want the sky to be instead of having the blue fabric over the stage and bouncing HMIs without CTB into it. And for the sun, just an 18K with CTS. What do you think, Shane? Do you like uh, his solution or what do you suggest, Jan? All right, Jan. So obviously there's many ways to skin this cat, but this is the most difficult thing to do on uh, in a stage because, and this is what I discussed, I think, uh, in uh, Into the Badlands where I lit uh, a scene that was supposed to be day exterior, but inside a stage. Light has to come from everywhere. If you stand out uh, in the middle of a field or a backyard and you look around, just take that in. That's your motivation. Where is the light coming from? It's coming from overhead. It's coming from the side. It's coming from the horizon line. It's bouncing off of buildings. It's bouncing off the ground. It's, it's, it's everywhere. So you need to do that as well. And it just does not come from the top. So if you're going to create this blue sky scenario in a soundstage, the light has to come from everywhere. So when I do these, I a lot of times use balloons. So I'll have a big cloud balloon over the top and I'll dim it down. So um, it dims down to like six or eight or like eight to 10,000 Calvin. And then I have uh, some other balloons on the sides and then I bring in my 18K with like a quarter CTB on it, or sorry, quarter CTS on it to match the, and I bring in my 18K with quarter CTS on it to be able to match the sun. So that is the balloon idea. So if you're doing the bounce idea, which your friend uh, DP suggested with the CTB, that's a very good plan in regards to, you know, you can fly a white overhead and then bounce a CTB in it so you can get, you know, because a blue sky is anywhere from 10 to 12,000, 18,000 Calvin sometimes uh, bouncing off of that. So what I find I do is I bounce off of the white, but some of my pars, like I use a lot of 4K M40s, Airy M40s or Airy M90s to bounce off of the uh, the overhead. You know, by using those, I'll I'll use you know I'll I'll gel some of them and not others. So it it has you know it's not so blue sometimes, and uh, and you know there's sky that. When you're in an area where it's bouncing around off of walls uh, or off of a building, well, that tonality is not so blue sometimes. So I, I like the ability to have CTB there, but choose how much CTB I'm using. Usually I'm using half on some and full on others or a quarter on some, you know, it's just mixing that up. But then the big thing is that's the top light. 
But then you got to surround yourself with light coming from the left and the right. So I get like 20 by 20, you know, bleach muslins or ultra bounces, and then I bounce light onto them as well. And I literally surround the set with them. So I, I'll put them on high rollers and move them all around. So if you're shooting one direction and say you got the sunlight backlighting, like three quarter backlight, then I will have the light bounce up into the you know the overhead which you know you want that to be very large kind of 40 by 40 and you're bouncing your lights up into that and then I'm also bouncing lights into the 20 by 20 bleach muslins or ultra bounces that I create in a U so they literally surround the camera on the left and right side and then you can decide which side is is hotter like if you're going for backlight uh, with the 18K, then you're, you make one uh, 20 by brighter than the other and, and you bring negative fill in. You, you treat it just like your out day exterior. And what I try to do is not fake it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm lighting from the right, so I don't need a white on the left because I'm going to, you know, that's my negative fill. Wrong. Because when you do that, it feels wrong. It feels different because when you think about it, when you're controlling and creating your negative fill outside, you're bringing in that 12 by 12 or 12 by 20 or 20 by 20 to control the, the ambience. But the ambience is still wrapping around that thing. And that's what looks real. So you want those whites up still, but you're bringing in the blacks to kind of control it. And it actually looks perfectly real. And it, and it, uh, it makes it feel exactly how day exteriors will look. When you try to get like cut corners in regards to that, what ends up happening is it looks theatrical. It looks like you're on a stage and the light is very contrived and controlled because in day exteriors, the light is not contrived and it's not controlled. It's coming in from everywhere. It's your job to control it. And uh, I find that the, the having the, the same scenario that you would have, that, that idea of exactly where this is supposed to be, this blue sky and sunlight that you are matching on a soundstage, you want to do all the same exact things that you would do if you were outside. And that is light coming from everywhere and you flying solids and everything to control it and contain it and shape it. I hope that helps, Jan. All right. That was our first time sensitive question. All right. Here's the next one. I got another time sensitive question here. Where is it? Okay. Uh, okay. I've been a member for years, loving all the amazing content. Thank you for sharing uh, all your knowledge. I have a question about life shafts. I'm shooting an advertisement in a few weeks. We're shooting into two windows in a bedroom, and I need to create a real mood and style. I want a light shaft coming through the windows. They have Georgian blinds already installed so I can control the light a lot, which is helpful. 
I have only ever used HMIs off house power, but on this, I have the chance of using something bigger for the first time. I have a gaffer on board, but I won't, but he won't commit to the power of the light. I require as he doesn't want to be held accountable. So where do I start? How do I know if I need a 6K, a 12K, or an 18K? I have a cherry picker too, and it's on the first floor. I've been told 18K at 18 feet away gets the closest to the power of the sun. I have a budget, but not too big. However, don't want to get a 6K to save money, and it becomes a waste as it's not strong enough. If you want to see the location, see the reference photo. All right. Thanks for all your hard work. Well, you're very welcome. And here we go with another time-sensitive answer. (laughs) Okay. Well, here's what I have to say about that. You know how much I love 18Ks. And the reason being is... 18K is like a sun in a can, and a 6K is not going to cut it, and a 4K par is not going to look like it, and you're going to go around and round trying to save money on something that just needs to be an 18K. So get that cherry picker and get that 18K up in there, and you will be able to deliver beautiful shafts. If you look at a lot of the Into the Badlands that I did, those are all 18Ks coming through the windows that are creating those shafts. Even on stage, I'm using 18Ks. So this is a light that is the, uh, it's very hard. It, with the Fresnel, it creates beautiful uh, hard shadows. And, you know, you have the ability to spot and flood. And if it's a little too much, then you can scrim it down. But the situation you don't want to be in is that where you have to spot it in because you don't have enough light. And then all of a sudden your shadows start to go very soft. And then it just looks contrived. It looks theatrical because now you're changing what you and I and everyone knows as sunlight. It creates very hard shadows. If there's some atmosphere in the air, it creates a beautiful shaft. And when you start spotting it in, then you're you're spotting the light in, which then makes the Fresnel bloom. And when the Fresnel blooms to be able to intensify... So when the Fresnel blooms, so it it's needed to intensify that light, then by intensifying that light, you're softening your shadows because the Fresnel is the the shadow is seeing the whole size of the Fresnel. And just do this for it's a great uh, little learning tip that that will I don't know if you've done it before, but I always just, you know, throw these ideas out here because these are the kind of things that, you know, you'll have an aha moment. Get a Fresnel. Any Fresnel will work, but the bigger, the better. And just look at it with what I use is like gaffer's glass. You know, it's like a really thick light. Uh, sorry, really thick glass. You can look at the sun with it. But if you don't have that, just grab some neutral density and stack up a couple to get to like 2.1, seven stops. And look directly into the Fresnel with your eye, with this ND in front of your eye. Don't stare into the damn thing. I've done enough of that. And that's why I'm uh, speaking to you right now with glasses so I can read. Uh, so 
you know, I do not advise this without some type of eye protection, which will be this neutral density and obviously only look through one eye. All right. Have your buddy that's with you, your gaffer, your whoever, go start it full flood. And what you're going to see is a very small pin spot. Well, that's what you want to create your hard shadows that look like sun, the pin spot within the Fresnel. Now ask him to start or her to start spotting it in. When they spot it in, you're going to watch that whole Fresnel fill up and bloom. So imagine what that is doing to any kind of shadows that you're creating inside your set or your shaft. So now your shaft, when it was just the pin spot, had a perfect hard razor edge coming through those windows. Oh my God, it looked amazing. But then you spotted it in because you needed more punch and now it blooms. And now the, the hard edge that was created by the shaft coming through the window is not so hard anymore. It, it muddle, muddies out. It's mud. It, it kind of just, it, it's not that super hard shaft. So what you want to do is get the right light for the job. And if you're doing day interiors and you want to create shafts, you got to do it with 18Ks. Now, if you took a 6K uh, par or a 4K par or an M90 par, you're going to be spotting it in. You're going to uh, also, you're going to be getting very weird shadows. You'll get two and three different shadows uh, instead of one shadow. Um, it just doesn't look like sun. You can backlight with those lights, you know, where you're not seeing shadows and stuff. But for shafts, they also tend to, because the par light, if you're using those as shafts, they tend to dance because the the heat within the HMI bulb and the is dancing around in there. And uh, if you're shafting through a window with a 4K, a 6K, or you know, M90, M40 you tend to get a little dance happening where you'll feel the the light kind of uh, move, uh, the shaft kind of moves a little bit. So you definitely want to stay away from that. So Fresnels are the right way to go for creating beautiful shafts through windows. And the bigger, the better in regards to having, you can, you know, if you want harder shadows, you can take the 18K further away if you have enough light. If you want it to fill the room a little more, then you can bring it closer to the window and then it's going to ex expand into the window. You just have so many more options uh, with the 18K and the Fresnel. All right. I hope that answers your question. Time sensitive. Okay. All right. This question's from Dan. Thank you for all this wonderful information in one place. It feels like my cinemagraphic home for many reasons. I have a few questions spurred from the latest podcast regarding reels. All right, cool. Thank you very much, Dan. When constructing a reel meant to show cinematography skills, what should or should not be included? What types of shots should be left out? Should I include split screens or color grades I have done myself or only show finished shots? 
Should I include short sequences that add context, pacing, or standalone shots from different projects? How much shot variety is too much? Is there such a thing as too much shot variety in a reel? Is there a place for an interview audio? Should I find a music bed? What should be done about real audio? If I want to shoot several different types of content, should I mock up specific types of projects for several reels or try to ship one general reel to all different types of opportunities? I think what I'm looking for are best practices and what types of reels attract the right kind of attention along with pitfalls that I can try to avoid going forward. Thank you again for your time and consideration. Warmest regards, Dan. Well, Jesus, this is a detailed and in-depth question, Dan, and it's an excellent one. All right, let's start at the top. When constructing a reel meant to show cinematography skills, what should or should not be included? What types of shot should be left out? Any shot that doesn't look good. <laughs> Your reel is all about showing your best work and showing it in a way that has a style and a mood that it puts you in. Now, there's two different types, obviously. If you have a lot of commercial and a lot of feature work, then you're able to just play the commercial and play the feature trailer. If you don't have that much work and you're in a montage scenario, then you need to pick shots that make people go, wow, Jesus, that looks beautiful. Holy smokes. Wow, I love the contrast on that. Look at the color. That's what you want people doing. And, you know, in a montage, you have this ability to be able to get a great audio track. And the audio track does not need to be licensed. Okay. This reel is for internal use. It's getting you a job. Uh, you don't need to blast it all over uh, the, the uh, internet. Uh, this, is, this is something that you're, you're looking to, to advertise to the people that are going to be hiring you uh, for the job. So I never worried about licensing, but if you want to go down that road and blast it everywhere, then you can do that as well. But you want to find a really good track that is the mood and tone of what you like to shoot. Now, if what you like to shoot is not what you're shooting, then you need to take the best aspects of what you've shot that is the closest towards the direction that you want to head and, and put that in the reel. I find that a lot of people get pigeonholed into shooting exactly what they are not really passionate about, but that's what they have uh, on their reel and that's what they've been shooting. Well, I, we all know that there is jobs out there where there's three shots out of the 50 that were unbelievable and the rest was like Jimmy Dean sausage, right? Or, you know, something that's not exciting and not uh, visual, but there might be two shots in there that are like, wow, well, those are the ones you want to put in there and you want to... You want to push that into that area with and, you know, keep it simple, right? It's just got to be beautiful sound, you know, a track that really makes you bounce and hop and, and, uh, and really uh, 
be the mood that you are are looking for and then you frame it with the visuals that is the direction that you want to go should i do split screens of color grades no no only do uh finished shots uh if you were a colorist then that's something that you if you're if you're doing this as a colorist reel those things are very cool to do but not for cinematography should i include short sequences that add context pacing or standalone shot from different projects well if you there's a reel that is on my website if you go to shaneherlbert.com and there's a couple show reels there and it's the one that's like 7 or 8 minutes now that reel took, I, I did like, uh, it's like 20 some odd features in that reel. And it has a mix of powerful imagery, driving music, and audio from the films. So this is a very, really cool way to do that interspersing of audio from specific scenes. And it's something that got me a lot of work when I blasted that thing out there. People really responded to it and uh, they loved it and, and felt like it took them on an emotional journey. You laugh, you cry, you're inspired. Well, that's great storytelling and that's a really great reel. So, you know, look at those. There's a couple different versions too. There's like one that I cut it down and made it shorter. So there's like show reels, like, you know, 2014, 2013. 2014, 2015, 2016, that are montaged reels that I was doing to kind of, you know, do grab some more commercial work. So I was showing directors, commercial directors, all the big gun actors I was working with, as well as the, the lighting and drama of the scene, as well as the camera and how it moved. And all these things were put in there to try and get more commercial work. So depending on how much you have, you can try a little of that style where you're folding in the audio from the project and then, you know, getting out of it. And so take a look at that as, as a reference. If I want to shoot several different types of content, should I mock up specific types of projects for several reels? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I have a, like a car reel uh, for commercials. I have a commercial reel and then I have my cinematography show reel you know, for my features. So basically my website has all my work, whether it's long form or short form, and it's just literally there to, for you to see. And then there's the demo reels that are more of the montages. One is a car reel. One is a kind of a commercial showing commercial directors, all the actors that I work with and, and trying to get them, you know, like, uh, what is it? Star, you know, for them to really see, wow, I want to work with this guy kind of real. Uh, but you don't want to chase that too much. You don't want to be trying to, to make all different reels uh, to go after, you know, this style or that style. I think you just got to put your best foot forward and wear your work. And I, I try to lay it out too. So take your reel and take all the stuff that you have and put it out there and say, okay, this is the direction I want to go in. And I have probably 60% of that direction. Well, then that's where you need to fill the holes. 
And when I needed to fill those holes, um, I would always call my directors up and say, hey, uh, are you guys into doing any kind of spec spots? Have you been thinking about that? Or, you know, is there a short film you wanted to shoot or anything like that? Um, and this fills that gap. And I've done that in my career probably 10 to 12 times where calling up the director and they're like, yeah, I do want to shoot a spec spot. I was thinking about doing this and I'm like, all right, I'll get the camera gear, lighting, all that stuff, get the crew, let's do it. And then we end up shooting a spec spot that really fits into a hole of the type of the type of photography that I really was lacking. And that helped, you know, fill out my reel. Now you ask the question, is there a, ver is a variety, how much shot variety is too much? Is there such a thing as too much shot variety in a reel? Well, I remember my agent specifically telling me that you want to show scope. You want to show people that you can light night exteriors, that you like day exteriors, you got day interiors, day exteriors. You, you have uh, a wide variety of, of, uh, of different environments that you've lit and that you've shot. That really uh, shows the scope and shows your uh, abilities. So now where you want to go is if the stuff that you have been shooting is not necessarily in the pocket of where you want to go, then you got to grab as much of those moments that are very close to where you want to uh, go and then s try to shoot some other stuff or grab these spec spot things that I talked about or short films that can add to this collection but, you know, when it all comes down, if you don't have it, then don't show it. And I think that's the, the best advice I can give you. It's like, keep it short, keep it moving, show scope. And if you don't have it, don't show it. And if you do have it, then show it in a variety of ways that shows your scope and that you can do all different types of environments and what is your style. You don't want to try and show, you know, well, I'm, I can do handheld, I can do movie, I can do, you know, this type of, you know, it's like show the style that you love, that, that is your passion, that, that fires you up. That's what you want to, to lead with. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to be somebody you're not, you're never going to succeed. You have to follow your heart and, and your style. And there's going to be people that don't like your style. There's tons of people that don't like my style. They like the style that does everything that looks like a raw file, or they like the style that has this, or they like the style that's that. They, they, there's all these different styles out there that, that I don't shoot. I'm not going to try to be those styles. I'm not that person. I'm, I'm who I am. And that's when I show up, this is the artist of who I am. It's like you had Van Gogh, who was an impressionist, and you had other ones that were, you know, a realist, and you had all these things, uh, all these different painters out there. Well, you're a painter, and you have to paint the way you want to paint, the way you know you love to paint, your passion. It can't be anything other than that. 
You cannot try to be the person that you feel is getting all the work out there. And you're like, okay, I'm going to try to duplicate that guy or that girl. It's, it's, you're just going to fail. You got to go with what is your look and your passion and, and put all that in uh, energy into it. And I think you will, uh, you'll rise to the top and you will succeed. All right. Well, that concludes episode 37 on this podcast. And I was missing Lydia huge today, but uh, hopefully we will have her back. I think she's going to do her own podcast uh, next month because I'm going to be in Italy prepping my movie. And I told her that she's got to take the the baton and the torch and and, um, answer all your questions. All right. Thank you so much again. And remember, the podcast does not exist unless you send the questions in. And we have a a good amount of questions, but a lot of them I want to be able to, again, we have new members and I want to be able to share and answer their questions. So please continue to submit your podcast questions and we will answer them as quickly as we can. And when they're marked time sensitive, we fire those babies up and answer them within a month. All right. Take care. Love you all. Bye-bye. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20 and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.